0: This sermon, The Rest of the Story, was preached by Derek Overstreet on August 7, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Acts 16, would you stand with me? We're going to read verses 11 through 15. We'll limit ourselves to this text this morning. Luke writes, So setting sail from Troas... We made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the, woman, the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Listen to these precious words, perhaps the most, some of the most precious words in all scripture. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we we come to your word now with hearts already full. Lord, thank you that we we have sung theologically rich, Christocentric songs whose verses and courses flow forth from the eternal promises and truths of Scripture. We, We pray that you have already been glorified in this place as we have exalted your Son with our singing. And now we ask that you continue to do the same, that through the preached word, you would reveal the glory of your Son to us in greater ways, as Paul pre- or as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, that you would open the eyes of our hearts in an even greater way, to the glories of the gospel, to the blessings of Calvary that abide in our lives day in and day out, that you would speak to us. You know the burdens we carry right now individually. You you hold the futures individually and corporately of this church in your hands. And so, Lord, have your way. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts through the preaching of your word and be glorified as you do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Anybody familiar with Paul Harvey? No younger people raise their hands. Well, I'm gonna tell you about Paul Harvey. I used to love Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey was, I don't know, perhaps the greatest talk, radio talk show. Uh, host that maybe our country has ever known, Um, syndicated everywhere. And I can remember listening to Paul Harvey at a young age, kindergarten, in fact. Uh, My dad was the pastor of a small Assemblies of God church in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, before Jackson Hole was the playground for the rich and famous. And he also drove school bus, and I was in kindergarten, and so that means that I got to come home every day with him and have lunch with him in the kitchen of our single wide trailer. And I remember we, we ate one of two things, either tuna fish on saltines or my favorite, Oscar Mayer brown swagger with yellow mustard spread over... Little Marble Cocktail Rise. Oh man. If you come to my house, I will feed you brown swagger on Cocktail Rise. Everybody's going, we're not going to his house. (laughs) When I was older, we first moved to, when I first, Don and I first moved to Arizona, I actually got a job in construction. I got to meet Paul Harvey because we were building his house in the Biltmore. And so he and his wife, Angel, would come on the site. He was very friendly. He would talk to us. So that was a treat for me. I think I told him about the brown swagger on Cocktail Rye, uh, listening to his radio show. But here's what I loved about his show. He talked about a lot of different things. But you remember, he had this line. He would tell this story, and you could tell it was, he would, he would tell, tell a story that was connected to a very well-known story. But what he was the master at was pulling back the curtain and telling you the backstory, telling you the details that you probably didn't know. And he would tell the story, and he'd end it like this. And now, you know the rest of the story. And then his famous, good day. Remember that? Oh, man. We, we, we need to just play Paul Harvey one of these days. And, well, maybe not. Today, we witness what we have witnessed week in and week out in in, in the book of Acts. The gospel is preached and sinners get saved. Today is the same, only different. It's different because today Luke takes a moment and he gives us the rest of the story. He pulls back the curtains on what happens when the gospel is preached and a sinner believes. And what he tells us, what is demonstrated in this narrative, that is taught didactically in so many different places of Scripture, it's important. It's important, because there are a few areas of the Christian life where, where we tend to throw our hands in the air in surrender or we we tend to feel so inadequate more than evangelism the message today is that only god opens hearts to the gospel so so don't give up on giving jesus to those around you you may feel weak in your witness you may feel inadequate as an evangelist. You may feel like you or there are so many questions and objections that you can't answer. But what we see happening on the banks of the river in a small in a city called Philippi remains today and it is critical to our own understanding and efforts in sharing Christ. Three points this morning if you're taking notes. One, Paul preaches the gospel. Lydia listens to the gospel. And then finally, the Lord opens Lydia's heart to the gospel. So this first point, Paul preached the gospel. Notice how the story begins um, in verse, or or, or, excuse me, Paul, notice uh, um, how the story begins in verse 11. Paul is setting sail from Troas. Now, if you were here last week, you can remember that Paul and Silas, they parted ways with Barnabas and Mark in chapter 15. And then immediately they run into and they meet a young disciple named Timothy. Yes, that Timothy. But then we learn in the beginning of chapter 16 that the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit redirected Paul and Silas in verses 7 and 8. Do you remember that? They were going to go up to, into Bithynia They were going to go to northern Asia. Instead, the Lord stopped them, and instead of heading north, they headed west, and ultimately they ended up in modern-day Greece. That's what we see in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and it is there where they meet, according to verse 13, a woman named Lydia. Now, I, I, I don't want to pass over the, the irony here. Um, Lydia, in verse 14, we learn she is actually from Bithynia, which is in Asia, and so Lydia is an Asian woman, most likely. Of course, Asia, northern Asia, is the place where the Spirit kept Paul from going. And now, now, he runs into this gal named Lydia, probably an Asian woman, but she's in Europe. (laughs) She's in Europe. And so what we have here might not be obvious to everyone, but in these opening verses, the gospel goes to Europe. The gospel breaks new boundaries. We're going to Asia. No, you're not. There's an Asian woman in Europe. You're going to Europe. Doesn't God work in mysterious ways? Remember that in your life today. (laughs) God works in mysterious ways. Now, you'll notice in Luke 12, Paul says... Uh, Luke says that Paul and his team settled in Philippi. If you don't know much about Philippi, uh, some have referred to it as a miniature Rome. Philippi was a capital city of, uh, of Macedonia. It, it, prestige and politics and potential. That was Philippi. And when he, Paul got to Philippi, he did what he always did. He preached the gospel, With no synagogues in Philippi, Paul went to the beach where somehow he had heard a small group of women would be there gathered to pray. Notice what verse 13 says. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, Luke doesn't say Paul preached Christ to this small group of women, but it's pretty clear that what he was speaking to them was the gospel. In fact, verse 15 makes that clear. She was baptized. She acknowledged herself now as one of them and brought them into her home. Some say that really Philippi, this was the beginning and Philippi would become Paul's personal headquarters. If, you, if you've ever read the book of Philippians, you know that, that Philippi, boy, there was no church on board with Paul and his church planting uh, uh, ministry more than Philippi. So this was the beginnings of that church in Philippi. On the beach, small group of women praying here comes an old, gangly, probably funny-looking dude, and he sits down, he interjects himself, and he begins to talk about Jesus. No doubt, Paul began to tell them about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. No doubt, he told them that Jesus alone can give them forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lydia was a worshiper of God, which means she no doubt knew the Old Testament scriptures, even though she was not a Christian. So Paul probably connected the dots between the Old Testament and Christ as the fulfillment. No doubt, Paul explained the necessity for repentance and faith. Paul did what he always did. He gave them Jesus, wherever he went, he talked to people about Jesus. He, he could have given them unforgettable stories. He could have given them his amazing testimony. And maybe he did a bit of that. But Paul always had one song to sing. He, had, he, he always had one ultimate conversation to have bring the gospel to those God brings to him. I want you to think about this for a moment. Paul was headed north. The Spirit redirects, and they go to Europe. They've traveled probably roughly 150 miles out of their way to get to Philippi for what? And we're talking travel by land and sea. Salmon Thrace was an island, is an island. And for what? Paul, Paul, Paul and his team get there. There's not even a synagogue. You needed 10 men and their households to have a synagogue. There wasn't even a synagogue. There's a small group of women praying on the beach. Didn't matter to Paul. It didn't matter to Paul. Remember, remember the vision in verse 9. The whole reason why the part of being directed was the the, the, the Lord gave him a vision where, where there was a man in Macedonia saying, Come help us. Where's the man? Paul didn't feel let down. He didn't feel disappointed. He didn't feel like the trip was wasted. He got right to it. Those that God put before him, he explained, and he expounded the gospel with the same fervency and passion he did in any other evangelistic occasion. And like I said, guess what? L- listen, Small beginnings. The church in Philippi, Paul's greatest support and fan in his church planting ministry. Just go read the book of Philippians and see how important the church in Philippi was to Paul and all the church plants. Small, small beginning. On this beach, a small group of women Here's my point. Never underestimate your audience. Never underestimate your audience. In particular, moms and dads. Never underestimate your audience. Never underestimate sitting in the backyard, just you and your eight-year-old son and telling them about Jesus. Never underestimate your audience. God has you in that place with that person or group of people, and the Holy Spirit is with you. And the gospel message that you have saves. So speak doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter how small it seems. Give them Jesus. That's what Paul did everywhere he went. So that's what we see. We go to Philippi. What is Paul doing? Paul's doing what Paul always does. He's preaching Jesus. And then Lydia, we learn, was listening to him. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. One of the ladies on the beach, we don't know how small this group was. Was it three? Was it 10? Who knows? Luke doesn't care. It doesn't matter. He points out a woman named Lydia. And Luke simply says she was a seller of purple goods. She, she may have been on a business trip. I, I don't know. She may have moved to Philippi to advance her business. But but she was a seller of purple goods. In that day, purple dye was reserved for royalty and celebrities. It was reserved for wealthy politicians and those in high government positions. So so one of the things that we can assume about Lydia is that she was a prosperous entrepreneurial businesswoman. She was making her way. She had a serious business going. She was successful. But you notice in that verse, Luke also says that she was a worshiper of God at the end of verse 14. Or you might say, a God fear. She wasn't a Christian, but she was drawn. She was drawn to the monotheistic and ethical values of Judaism. She had come to love them. She had come to see them as good and right. She believed in Yahweh. She, she prayed to Yahweh. She, she adhered to the Old Testament teachings. She was a Gentile, but she was a God-fearer. But she didn't know Jesus. But as Paul shares the gospel on the beach, Luke says she's listening. The word, the the, the phrase there, pay attention, she's focused. She's taking it in. She is, she's not thinking about her business. She's not thinking about her investments. She's not thinking about her sales pipeline. She she is heeding what Paul is saying. She's hanging on every word. She's processing what she's hearing. Maybe she is connecting the dots with the Old Testament and what she has learned in the scriptures. She was gripped. She wasn't playing with her cell phone. She wasn't checking her calendar. She was engaged. She was listening. And while we're on the subject, while I'm drawing attention to things that we shouldn't underestimate, let me say, never underestimate listening. Never underestimate the power of listening. Listen. We, we live We live in a time where too many in the church world think that that you have to have bells and candles. You have to have PowerPoints and video clips. You've got to stimulate the senses. You've got to have artistic expressions in your liturgy. You've got to have... Real group dialogue. Let me get in the middle of all of you and I'll just talk and you can ask me questions and we'll go Socratic. We live in a day when listening, forgetting about everything else around you and listening. Karen, listening. <laughs> I'm not telling Karen to listen, but this morning she said, I love when you She's a good listener. (laughs) Sorry, Karen, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. (laughs) We live in a day where listening is seen as passe, outdated, ineffective. I can't do more. 25 minutes on a sermon, that's all people can tolerate, especially your preaching. (laughs) I wasn't pointing at you, I was talking about me. Don't underestimate the power of listening because listening right now is engaging. Listening to the preached word is engaging and is being engaged by God. Listening to the gospel is to interact with God himself. Paul wrote in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing. We won't hear if we don't listen. So there's a question here. How do I arrange my Saturday night? How do I arrange my Sunday morning? Well, come on, pastor, don't get so. No, really, it's important. It's an important question. How do you arrange your Saturday evening or your Sunday morning knowing that you are about to come and God calls you to listen as he speaks to you through His word. How how do you take Sunday morning and the glory of what is happening right now? God is in this place. His, His perfect word that is profitable for all things is being declared. Imperfectly, yes. Because the preacher is imperfect in so many ways. We sang about this morning that the spirit is here. How do you prepare for that? How do you prepare to listen to the preached word, to listen to the spirit of God, to to listen to the encouragement of others? Too often we rush into this room, harried and weary and thinking about everything except about what we are about to do. We, We rush in barely on time or late. And while our bodies are present, our minds... And our hearts are absent. So, how do you prepare yourself to listen on Sunday morning? Let me give you one way teach yourself to listen. This is a great little book, <clears throat> Expository Listen. I think I've recommended this from the pulpit. I even think it's been Book of the Month at some time. This is an outstanding book on how to, you know, it's not just the preacher that's called, actually. There's more in the Bible about listening than preaching. (laughs) How do we train ourselves to listen on Sunday mornings? So Paul is passionately preaching. Lydia is intently listening. But, But there's a third person in this story. Notice verse 14. The Lord opened. Her heart. Two people on the beach. Three people on the beach. One of them just can't be seen. Paul's preaching. Lydia's listening. But it's the Lord that opens her heart. And that's our third point. The Spirit opened Lydia's heart according to verse... 14, there, there was a three-way interaction happening here, a three-way interaction. And these are, to me at least, these are some of the sweetest words. We can just roll over this. It's just, uh, it's, yeah, great. Lydia got saved on the beach. But think about that. The Lord opened her heart. Luke put that there. Under the inspiration of the Spirit. That phrase, that phrase is intimate. The transcendent God personally attends to the heart of Lydia and opens her heart to the gospel. She is listening to. He came to her. Listen, who doesn't, who wouldn't be captured to some degree in hearing about a man who claimed to be God himself? And all that he did in his life and his death. And then after three days in the grave, he rises from the dead and over 500 people see him. Who wouldn't be interested in that kind of a story, at least for a little bit? But the Lord had to open her heart so that she would embrace And believe what she was here. The imagery of a door is natural here, right? This door, the door of Lydia's heart, is is a little bit different. My my daughter in law, Lauren, told me that you know I put this new doorknob on our doors, and she said that I did it wrong. She said you got the screws facing the room that you're that you're going. Uh, Out of, I think that's the way it's supposed to be said. But you're not supposed to be able to see the screws. I had the doorknob on wrong. (laughs) Well, this door is different. Spiritually speaking, the door of the heart has a handle not on the inside, but on the outside. I can remember. I probably shouldn't tell this story, but you know what I'm about to tell you is not in the Trip Brothers parenting methodologies. Okay. It is not in the scriptures. In fact, it is in the scriptures. It probably falls underneath that portion in Ephesians 6 where uh, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Brett was probably three, and man, it was impossible to keep him in his bed, in his bedroom, when it was time to go to bed at night. Pre Christ. I had had enough, and so one day I got this brilliant plan. See, his sister's bedroom was directly across the hall, so I just went and got a piece of rope, and I tied the two doorknobs together. (laughs) Problem solved, I promise you. All you heard, you didn't see, Brett, all you heard was... He couldn't get out of there. He was trapped. He had zero ability to open that door and get out of that prison. Now, I don't think that went on very long before Donna looked at me and said, no. Spiritually speaking, that's us. Our heart is locked. Nothing, sin and Satan have locked the heart to our door. It it has to be opened for us. Otherwise, it will remain closed. Turn to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Just a couple books forward. Listen to how Paul, in Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And by nature, in other words, there's nothing we could do about it. <laughs> we were born this way. But we were dead. A dead man can't do anything. Spiritually speaking, we couldn't open the door of our heart to truth, no matter how much we wanted to believe it. Now flip over to, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This truth in Ephesians 2, this, that, that, that we root our doctrine of man in, we need to be acted upon in order to believe, because we are spiritually dead, there is only, the, the door to our heart only has a doorknob on the outside, not the inside. That truth that comes from Ephesians 2. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, could write after the beginning of chapter 2, if you're tracking with me there, he talks about the gospel. For I decide to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And then he says this in verse nine. nine, But as it is, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Then verse 10, these things God has revealed to us. How? Through the natural? No, through the spirit. Now look down to verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Which things are those? Well, go up to the beginning of chapter 2. lot of things, but primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. And there is no qualifier there. You could say... Full stop. But God doesn't. He says, because they are spiritually discerned. The Lord had to open Lydia's heart up to the truth of the gospel so that she may believe. From Pentecost to the Gentile, we have seen the gospel preached. And Luke typically tells us something like, they believed, or they had faith. But in Lydia's conversion, he does something different. He pulls the curtain back to show us how Lydia came to have faith, to show us how a sinner with no door on the inside of their heart can have that door opened up, indeed kicked down from the outside, so that the good news of the gospel can come rushing in and fill the room of your heart. In essence, Luke says, now you know the rest of the story. You wonder about how that sinner got saved? Well, now, yes, you preach the gospel. We give them Jesus we must listen to truth. And scripture says that we must repent of our sins and have faith in Jesus or you will not be saved. But here Luke says there's more to the story and now you know the rest of the story. If you repented of your sins and you believed in Jesus, it's only because the Lord opened the door of your heart. Therefore, Ephesians 2.8, it is a gift and no man can boast only give glory to God. Amen. And we're reminded this morning that God is the hero of Acts. <laughs> He's the hero of history. There's no credit to Paul's amazing gospel articulation here. There, there, there's no credit to the power of the prayer of the women. Were they praying for Lydia? Oh, Lord, help her. There's nothing. It's all about the Lord. Preach Christ all you want. Listen as intently as you may. But unless the Lord opens the heart, you will not be saved. Now listen to me. Listen, don't, don't take that wrong. Oh, well, 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 the Lord has to open my heart then. No, 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 God does not let you go there. Do you remember the story about Nicodemus? Did I mention the story about Nicodemus? Oh, I'm going to mention the story about Nicodemus in <laughs> just a moment. Well, I got out of my notes. Sometimes I just, I get going and I forget, oh, I wasn't supposed to say that yet. That's when I just need to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just going to go to the story of Nicodemus. And if you want to know what was in between what I said last and Nicodemus, I'll, I'll tell you. But let me say this. This is the precious doctrine of regeneration. You, you want a theological category. You want a theological handle. You want a word that the really smart guys use. It's the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration. That, that secret and miraculous act of the spirit in which God replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that are inclined to, yes, willingly run to Jesus in repentance and faith. That's the doctrine of regeneration, and it's what we see right here happening. We see it happening. When Jesus was teaching Nicodemus... Uh, he talked about, well, yeah, I know it's confusing, Nicodemus. It's like the wind. You can hear it, but you can't see it. You can see it's a fact, but you can't actually see the wind. That's the doctrine of regeneration, the Spirit of God opening up a sinner's heart. If if you're familiar with uh, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, go there this week if you're not, but that's what he said. Nicodemus, how, how can one be saved? One must be born of water and spirit, water and spirit, and Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about regeneration. Now, if you know the story, you know that that Nicodemus is perplexed. He's confused. What? He gets it wrong. How how do you climb back up into your womb, and Jesus goes, "No, no, 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 Nicodemus, and in fact, Jesus actually rebukes Nicodemus. He says, you're a teacher of Israel? And you don't know about this? In other words, this is clear in the Old Testament Scriptures. Turn to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, in fact, because I think Jesus is probably referring to this prophetic promise of old, Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you know what is immediate, do you know what immediately follows that prophetic word chapter thirty seven The Valley of the dry. Bones. <laughs> Preach to the bones, Ezekiel. What? Preach to him, And he does. And they come to life. Ephesians 2. First Corinthians 2. The doctrine of regeneration. Lydia on the beach in Philippi. The precious doctrine of regeneration. Anthony Hokema says, since the heart stands for the inner core of the person, we may assume that the opening of the heart describes regeneration. This led Lydia to respond believingly to what Paul was saying, to accept it, to embrace it, and to act upon it. One can only respond in repentance and faith after God has given new life. Now, do you remember when I said, do you, we don't have an excuse? We can't say, well, God has to change me. He has to regenerate my heart in order for me to believe. God doesn't give you that out. The call to the sinner is repent and have faith in Jesus. When Jesus Jesus taught this to Nicodemus in John 3, do you know what he immediately said after he helped Nicodemus understand regeneration? Because Nicodemus, no doubt, could have went, well, wait a minute, what what do I got to do then? The Lord has to act on me. Guess what famous verse comes next? John 3:16: "For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten Son that what? That whoever believes, Jesus immediately said, yes, the Lord has to act on you, Nicodemus, but you must believe. And here's the deal: When you believe, you can't take any credit, because now you look and you see that was the Lord working in me." Listen. <laughs> The, the, uh, um, the goal here, the goal here this morning is not to completely and fully unpack the doctrine of regeneration. That there are a lot, you know, why does the gospel come alive in one person's heart in the congregation and not another? Well, why in some cases, with every possible advantage and, and despite every plea, some reject Christ and continue dead in their sins? Why, in other cases, with every possible difficulty and without any encouragement, are some born again and believe in Jesus? That, those are mysterious. Those, those, those questions are hard to answer, but here's what we can see from Scripture. The gospel is the glorious message of salvation. And yes, my heart is sealed shut by sin and Satan, but regeneration is the glorious explanation of how we come to willingly and freely believe in Jesus, even though we can't fully comprehend how that works. Like I said, the goal this morning is not to fully explain regeneration. For a deeper dive in that, if I may do a little commercial here, for a deeper dive, I want to invite you to join me in October for our next Sovereign Grace University class. <laughs> uh, one of the mis- probably the most requested ministry to return since the pandemic. We've done three units, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of Jesus. And in October, we're going to spend four weeks Studying the doctrine of salvation, election, conversion, justification, sanctification, glorification, preservation. And right in between election and, ju- and conversion is this doctrine called regeneration. And it unlocks the secret of how a sinner who is dead in their sins can come to a place of faith and repentance and be saved. Listen, if you want, you want to grow in gratitude, you want to kill your greatest enemy pride and cultivate your greatest friend humility, do you want to elevate your lukewarm affections for Jesus, do you want to see greater boldness in your evangelism, come to Sovereign Grace University this October Because the effects of studying the doctrine of regeneration are greater gratitude, deeper humility, stronger affections for your Savior, and an emboldened witness. But this morning, on a beach in Europe, we are reminded that the Lord must act in a person's heart if they are to believe the gospel in their hearts. Whether you are hearing the gospel, reading the gospel, or considering the gospel, God sovereignly opens your heart to believe and receive the gospel. And without his activity, without the miracle of regeneration at the hands of his spirit. No one will believe. But here's the good news. If you're not a believer this morning, don't look for a feeling. Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Provide your righteousness. Righteousness. And is the only way that you can be made right with God. Confess it. Believe it. That's your call. And you get no out. And here's the good news. Jesus loves to save sinners. He loves to do the regenerating work of the Spirit. He is the great Evangelist, and he loves to open hearts that Satan has locked shut to the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of his son Jesus Christ. So here's our application it's simple don't give up, keep preaching Jesus. Specifically, anxious mom and dad, keep giving your child Jesus, whether they are five or 25. If they do not know the Lord, don't give up. You might have to take a little bit different approach. You might have to really study your child to figure out what, what is the objection, that's the work of an evangelist. How do I help them see the glory of Jesus in this aspect of life? But don't give up on your unsaved child. Weary husband or wife, don't give up on your unbelieving spouse. Frustrated friend. Don't give up on your stubborn friend. Who you feel like. I've told them about Jesus so many times They just they're stuck. Well, yeah. The door of their hearts locked shut. Their sin and, and Satan have sealed it. Don't give up, though. Sometimes God saves the first time you share the gospel with that person, like Lydia. But other times, God may save on the 1,000th time that you share the gospel. Maybe that was you. Don't give up. It's not up to you. Just be a faithful evangelist and pray and trust and pray more that the Lord will open their heart as you bring the message of Jesus to them. Listen, Lydia's conversion tells us the rest of the story. Be hopeful and don't give.